Hi, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the members here at Christ Church. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we get started, I just wanted to give you some time to get sorted. If you have any children, maybe you want to occupy them with something. Also, uh, please take this time to find a Bible, whether it's on your phone or a print version. And also, if you would like a written transcript, you can click on the link below and uh, find it there. We have been in a series called Recaptivated, going through Mark's Gospel. For Christians, we are remembering how and why we were captivated by the love of Jesus and seeing how we can fall more in love with him. And for some watching, you are going on this journey to see how you can be captivated for the first time. Either way, the life of Jesus is extraordinary, which has implications for us, as we will see today. My hope is that we will be captivated by Jesus' love and continue to love him more and more. Let's pray. Father, we are in need of you. We need you so much. And as we see today in this passage of the sacrifice that you have given for us, how you repeatedly, unconditionally, continually love us, we are so grateful. And we pray that we would receive this fully from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In my Korean upbringing, there was usually an underlying belief that my worth was based in my personal success. The expectations to perform were enormous because failure didn't mean just shame for you, it could mean shame for your entire family. Since I was five until I went to uni, I took piano lessons. My piano teacher would hold two recitals a year and the program would be ordered so that the last person to perform was considered the best of the term. There were three of us who were always vying for that last spot. Perhaps the competition was all in my head. When I saw my name in that last spot, it was a form of achievement. But, it, but when it wasn't me, I wouldn't say that I hated it, but I secretly hoped that my piano friends made an obvious mistake during their performance. Because if they did mess up, I admit that it made me a little happy because I wanted to make myself look better. I wanted to have the praise. But if I was the one that made the mistake, there was a lot of dejection, masked through my fake smile after the recital was over. If only I had practiced more, if only I was better. My success and failure defined me. I know today that this is not true, that in my weakness, my first instinct shouldn't be to make myself look better. Rather, it is to acknowledge my weakness and go to God. I admit that preparing today's talk was a difficult ordeal for me. I was more concerned about not letting others down. I was more concerned about saying something wrong. Am I going to be able to face the humiliation? Am I going to be able to face the scrutiny? Am I going to be able to face the shame? This is definitely a self-serving attitude. 
I'm more worried about what others would think of me rather than what God can do through me. And God continues to remind me that he needs to be the one who is glorified, not me. And isn't this the trap for a lot of us? That instead of acknowledging our weaknesses, we get in this mindset that we need to prove to others that we are not weak. As we look through today's passage, we find that Jesus has a special place in his heart for the weak. Jesus has a special place in his heart for failures. The question is, will you accept what Jesus thinks of you? Through our series in Mark's Gospel, three groups have been featured. The crowds, the opposition, and the followers. In this passage, we will focus primarily on the followers or the disciples, particularly in how they follow Jesus. We find time and time again that they fail. They fail to understand the state of their hearts. They fail to understand how to submit. They fail to understand who Jesus really is. Many of us can relate to these failures, but it is important to see that Jesus understands us. He understands our thoughts, our struggles, and how we see ourselves. First, we see multiple examples of how the disciples fail. Let's pick up in verse 27. Jesus is with the disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. He tells the disciples, you will all fall away. Peter responds, even if all fall away, I will not. He is quite emphatic that he will not disown Jesus. And the disciples respond in kind. It's probably telling if Jesus is the one saying that you will fall away. But putting that aside, Peter is quite adamant and overconfident that he is not going to deny Jesus. And in many ways, we can identify with Peter in terms of how, confi how confident we are regarding our personal assessment of ourselves. I often saw this Peter-like behavior when I was a maths teacher. Every year, I had students who had received high marks in their previous maths courses. Coming into my class, expecting it to be so easy again. In their head, Mr. Shin's class was going to be a breeze. They didn't need to work hard to maintain their high math marks. It was the students' overconfidence that led to complacency. They weren't the ones who would get the middle of the road marks. They were the achievers. But in reality, they didn't have a realistic view of themselves. They were overconfident and needed a shift in thinking. Peter is having a similar problem. He is so adamant that he will not fall away, that he will not fail, but Peter's overconfidence wasn't at odds with his maths teacher, but Jesus himself. If Jesus is the one who is saying something about us, it's probably wise not to disagree. But like all humans, when Jesus tells us something, it is sometimes very difficult to accept what he is saying. And whether or not we have an emphatic response, a subdued response, or maybe even no response, 
Jesus understands that the disciples fail to understand the state of their hearts. His warning isn't meant to criticize. He is leading them to him. In the hours before Jesus' death, he takes Peter, James, and John to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 33, we'll see that Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled. He says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And from the disciples' perspective, the most significant person, the most important person they know, their friend, is going through such a difficult time. Can you imagine if you had a friend in great distress? Perhaps the greatest distress of his life. How would you respond to that? What would you do uh, for your friend? Even if it's late, maybe if it's inconvenient. Jesus tells them what to do, how they can help him in verse 34. Jesus says, stay here and watch. Seems simple enough. After about an hour, Jesus returns to find the disciples sleeping. Jesus tells them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus returns again and finds them sleeping again. The disciples don't know what to say, probably because they're embarrassed, ashamed, definitely tired. Jesus goes back to pray and comes a third time and finds them still sleeping. We, now, we know how it feels when we know what the right thing is to do, but we repeatedly fail. No matter how much willpower we try to muster, no matter how many from now on declarations we make, no matter how many times we put, try to put God first, we are prone to miss the mark. For me, I loved playing the piano, but I hated practicing. I often remember my mom telling me to practice, and I knew she was right. Looking back, I am very grateful for her consistency. And every time I told myself that I was going to practice more, I'm going to practice more, you know, two hours every single day. Laziness and distractions crept in, and I would find any type of excuse to make sure the blame was placed somewhere else. It wasn't my fault. I had too much schoolwork to do. I had other extracurricular activities I had to do. I had to watch those TV shows. But in reality, it came down to me not wanting to. My willpower was not enough. And yet Jesus understands that even when the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Jesus understands the failure of the disciples. He understands our failure. And then Judas, the betrayer, comes to have Jesus arrested. In verse 43, we see Judas leading a mob sent from the religious leaders. Continuing on in verse 46, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. While Mark's gospel doesn't identify the one who drew the sword, we find in John's gospel 
that it was actually an overzealous Peter. But it's interesting to see what Jesus says in verse 48. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. Jesus doesn't intend to put up a physical fight. He doesn't intend to flee. He willingly goes with the crowd. And the failure of the disciples is evident in verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. The disciples abandoned Jesus to save themselves. They were afraid. They didn't want anyone to know that they were associated with Jesus. Do you remember how adamant Peter was about not falling away, about never disowning Jesus? We can say with our lips that we will follow Jesus no matter what, but perhaps deep down we feel there may be situations we can justify to ourselves not to follow Jesus because it may be too dangerous, too costly, too difficult. Maybe there is a limit to your faith. Maybe the cost of giving everything to Jesus is too high for you. Would you be willing to be persecuted for your faith? Would you be willing to go to prison for your faith? I admit that I would definitely struggle with that. And I'm grateful that I have never been put in that situation. So most of us could understand why the disciples deserted Jesus. It is still a failure, but perhaps it's an understandable failure. But what about when the stakes are even lower? Even though Peter fled, he does follow behind those who arrested Jesus. We pick up in verse 67, where we see a servant girl's interaction with Peter. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus. But Peter denies it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And Peter leaves the area. A few moments later, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around them, this fellow is one of them. Again, Peter denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them for your Galilean. Peter began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Peter denies Jesus three times, but the failure is more pronounced this time. Before in the presence of a mob, it may have been understandable to be terrified for your life, that associating yourself with Jesus might get you thrown in prison or possibly harmed. And even then, Peter eventually follows Jesus after in a distance. But in this instance, the servant girl has no authority over Peter. The servant girl can't harm Peter. She's merely asking questions. The stakes are much lower, and Peter is terrified. In today's society, I think this may be the equivalent of someone at work, a neighbor, a fellow student asking you, what did you do over the weekend? Hey, Daniel, anything exciting happen over the weekend for you? And in my mind, I would think about all the possible things I did outside of church. 
I saw my friends, I went for a walk, I watched some TV, nothing exciting. I would casually reply knowing that I just glossed over being in a community <laughs> with the ch church body because they don't want to hear about that. Do you have a temptation to gloss over the fact that you went to church online? That you were singing and worshiping God in your living room on Sunday morning? Are you terrified of what people think of you? People who can't harm you. When the stakes are lower, we are still tempted to disassociate ourselves with Jesus. Why is that? My aim is not to guilt you or to shame you. Although I do admit that is a temptation of mine to feel this way about my own actions. I think we have great hope because Jesus knows our hearts. Nothing is a surprise to Jesus. He knows that the disciples are failures. When Jesus calls out our failure, he isn't saying for us to be better. He's saying, come to me, come to Jesus, because Jesus saves failures. This is the second thing that we see. Around the time Peter is denying that he knows Jesus to the servant girl, Jesus is on trial, and a very unfair trial at that. The religious leaders are going through the motions of a trial, but they already know the verdict is going to be guilty. In verse 55, we see the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. There is no evidence that Jesus did anything wrong. Jesus is blameless. In verse 60, the high priest asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Jesus knows what's going on. He knows that the trial is bogus, and yet Jesus remains silent. Jesus does not defend himself. So the high priest takes a different tactic and asks Jesus directly, Are you the Messiah? Meaning, are you the chosen one, the Christ? Jesus knows what the religious leaders are thinking. Their conception of the Messiah was not someone who was just captured helpless by his enemies, certainly not someone whose followers just abandoned him. It was definitely not Jesus. They were looking for a warrior king. They were looking for a Thor, strong, confident, ready to go to battle. Someone who would inspire confidence. They weren't looking for a pacifist. Someone who was willing to die and not put up a fight. How could Jesus be the Messiah? He definitely doesn't have the appearance of a Messiah. And so Jesus knows that by affirming he is the Messiah, he would certainly die for his blasphemous claim. 
Jesus responds to the high priest's question. I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. In verse 63, it says, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. And yet Jesus' admission wasn't blasphemy. It was the truth, a truth that would lead to his death. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who died for those who put their faith and trust in him. So why does Jesus not defend himself? Why does he go along with this illegal trial? Why does Jesus go along with the injustice of the religious leaders? Why does Jesus not retaliate for being wrongfully accused and abused? Why does Jesus not fight back when he was wrongfully arrested and betrayed? That is the point that Jesus is trying to convey to us. Jesus dies for us all, even those who deny him. Let's go back to Jesus when he was praying at the Garden of Gethsemane. When we see the anguish and sorrow that Jesus is experiencing, we know that Jesus understands the stakes of what his death would mean. In verse 34, Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus knows that the death of his perfect life means that others can live. But the prospect of bearing God's wrath for everyone's sins is not something to take lightly. In verse 36, look at the distress in his words. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. Jesus sees firsthand the failures of people, especially the disciples. He sees the overconfidence of the disciples and their unwavering devotion to him. When Jesus returns to Peter, James, and John, he finds them asleep three times. When Judas comes afterwards, he betrays Jesus. On Jesus' arrest, an overzealous Peter draws his sword. The disciples scatter like lost sheep. When Peter is questioned by a young servant girl, he denies any association with Jesus. When Jesus is unfairly put on trial, they wrongfully accuse him and condemn him to death. Jesus gets constant reminders of the sin and failure around him. Jesus knows the heart of man. He knows what he is dying for. He knows who 
he is dying for. And he decides to follow the will of the Father. At the beginning of this passage, Jesus predicts, you will all fall away. As we see the events that unfold afterward, as we see the constant failure of all the people, this prediction doesn't seem like criticism. Jesus is not saying to the disciples to perform better or be better followers. It's actually an invitation. Jesus, who knows our failure, is asking us to agree with him that we are failures. Jesus, who is our savior and died for our failures, is asking us to accept this free gift. Last week, Morris showed us how God deliberately set everything up so that Jesus could die to save us. And our part of the story is how we continually mess things up over and over again. And yet, it is us failures that Jesus dies for. It is our acknowledgement of how deep our failures go that no matter how hard we try, we will always end up as failures. And hopefully that causes us to be moved at the unconditional love that God freely gives us. How should we respond then? If the point isn't that we would become better Christians, and it's not to do better the next time, it's not to be nicer, you know, don't let people down next time, we should just serve more, we should be better people, I mean, all those things are good things, but the temptation is that we want those actions to define who we are rather than admitting that we don't have it all together. We are like Peter. We are like the one who is weak. We are like the one who runs away when things get difficult. We are like the one who denies Jesus when the stakes are so low. We are like Peter the failure. And Jesus knows that we are like Peter. And isn't it amazing that Jesus died for those who are weak? Isn't it amazing that Jesus died for those who run away? Isn't it amazing that Jesus died for the deniers? Can you fathom the unconditional love that Jesus has for us? Isn't he someone we would want to love and trust? Jesus submitted to his Father and went to the cross for you because he loves you in your failure. And perhaps some of us are adamant like Peter who declared emphatically that he is not and will not be a failure. But Jesus knew the heart of Peter, much like he knows your heart. He knows that you will fail, and he loves you in your failure. If you are unsure about being a follower of Jesus yet, there, there is no better time than now to admit your need for Jesus for the first time and ask for help in your weakness. You can do this by simply praying. That is just speaking to him.
But for all of us, Jesus dying for failures means you and I don't have to compare. We don't have to compete. We don't have to worry about what others think of us. We merely worship our perfect father out of our imperfectness. There is so much freedom in this way of living. Jesus died because we, as failures, as Peters, are inadequate and weak. Jesus was falsely accused, beaten, and then crucified in a gruesome death because he knew there was no other way. Jesus knows we need him. Let's pray. Father, this world gives us so many reminders of how we need to look good in front of others. This world sends us messages that we need to care about what other people think over what you think of us. Father, as we acknowledge that we don't have it all together, remind us to know that it's more than just okay, it is necessary for us to be able to receive the free gift, your unconditional love, salvation. Lord, help us not to worry about any of these external things, but let us be focused on what you have to offer us. Let us focus on your love for us, that you knew that we were failures and you still died for us. And for that, we are so grateful. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.